May God teach you the meaning of that name, Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, it is wisdom's mystery, God with us. Sages look at it and wonder. Angels desire to see it. The plumb line of reason cannot reach halfway into its depths. The eagle wings of science cannot fly so high, and the piercing eye of the vulture of research cannot see it. God with us. It is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. His legions fly apace. The black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. Let Satan come to you suddenly and do you but whisper the word, God with us, and back he falls, confounded and confused. Satan trembles when he hears that name. God with us. It is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor acknowledge his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us is the sufferer's comfort is the balm of his woe, is the alleviation of his misery, is the sleep that God gives to his beloved, is the rest after exertion and toil. God with us is eternity's sonnet, is heaven's hallelujah, is the shout of the glorified, is the song of the redeemed, is the chorus of angels, and is the everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. Um, Janice, I think, got it, got it right, and it's actually what we're going to be looking at this tonight, when she said that um, when, when God comes in our midst, when the baby came, it changed everything. The whole world got turned upside down. And the, uh, that, that, that very phrase, God with us, um, quite honestly, more often than not, it just seems something that's a nice thing to say. It sounds good. It's, it's the statement we say at Christmas time, but the, the sense of the reality of it in our midst is sometimes um, seems so intangible um, that we can live as though it's not true, and yet the, the reality of what it is, and what's what we're looking at for the next five weeks, actually, 
that God himself coming down to the very midst of us um, turns everything over. It changes everything. Um, and it's an incredible, it's glorious, it sounds impossible, but it is life-altering. And it's truth, the truth that God is with us is at the very heart of the gospel. Um, during Advent, which means coming, we've got five, five times we look at this, we've got five candles here, so the next four Sundays, and then um, Christmas Eve, uh, we're going to be talking about um, how do we respond to the event that God was in our midst, that God came in, in our midst. When he, when he showed up, there's all these different people that had different responses in the nativity stories, and our goal is going to be look at how do we respond to it. Um, how does God want us to respond, and how do we and sometimes actually respond? We respond to something. Um, how do we respond to something that will so thoroughly alter and change um, everything? I was just thinking about um, people arriving and showing up. As a matter of fact, I, can't, I got startled today because I came... Um, I can't remember when I went out to dump some garbage. Somebody. I came out the side door of our house, which is our little carport, because nobody ever uses the front door anyways. And, and I came around the corner, and there was a, guy, was a FedEx guy standing here holding a box, and I about fell down. He startled me. Um, and the, how do we respond? When, you know, when people come to my door, um, generally when somebody's coming to my door, it's um, some kid selling candy to keep him from going down a bad road in life and, or something like that, or somebody that's trying to convert me, one of those two things. And I'm usually off standish, a bit cold, um, or that, or we'll just pretend we're not home. One of those two things, we just kind of keep it away. Um, other times we have arrivals that, are, that bring a, a, a great response. I think about a year ago, my brother Chuck, I've shared this, showed up at church unexpectedly. And after church, I saw him, he was standing here, and, and there's this delight, and like this, you can't express it, it's delight. It's just a, a reception of it. This is so great that this person would come up. Sometimes it might be at the mall or somewhere, and you see somebody you haven't seen for a while, and the reason you haven't seen them for a while is because it didn't end well, and there's something there, and you see them, and you don't want to see them, and there's anxiety or anger or whatever shows up. Um, arrivals bring different responses to us. Um, I remember when our first, um, our first child came, and the second and the third, actually I felt this way, all of them, but um, I remember that when they, you get to go home with your child, when you're not at the hospital anymore, and they actually give, you, give it to you, and you get in your car, and you're like, ah! This is like t- absolutely terrifying, because I can't believe they would actually let you take the child home. It's like, what are they thinking? But I remember, I remember thinking that exact thing. I thought, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, yikes! This is, no, don't do this to us. And then at the same time, there's this part of you going, whatever, okay, Lord, whatever. This is, this is great, we'll, we'll do it. And yet, going into it, receiving it, knowing absolutely nothing what you're doing. Um, all those different kinds of responses that we have um, when arrivals come our way. So we're talking about Emmanuel, God with us. Um, um, what is our response to be to that? So let me pray, and then we're going to look at one of them tonight. Father, thank you for... Um, nobody could have ever thought of the plan that you had for the world. It's, it's um, a little crazy. It's, it seems impossible. Um, And it's wondrous at the same time. And it brings change and grace and life um, that you yourself, the creator of the universe, would um, come and be part of this place. Um, That you would be one of us. That you would care for us. That you would do your work on the cross. um, That you would open a way. 
And as we look at the different responses all through this month, Lord, um, may we see ourselves, um, we're probably in all of these, and in the midst of doing that, that you may um, alter our hearts to reflect the kind of reception that um, we need to give to Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Matthew 2 tonight, and we'll actually be in this one again um, later in the month as we look at the wise men. This is the story of the, the Magi or the wise men and King Herod, and um, I'm not actually going to read the story because you guys know the story. We'll, we'll hit a couple parts of it. We're not going to really talk about the wise men or whatever they were. We're going to talk about Herod tonight mostly. But it starts out here. It says, uh, chapter, Matthew chapter 2, um, start with verse 1. It says, Jesus, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi arrived from the east, arrived in Jerusalem. So it starts out, in the days of Herod the king. Um, it's uh, interesting, like in the book of Isaiah, when it talks about Isaiah having a vision of God, and it says, in the days of Uzziah the king, there was something going on, but there's something more important that happened. And here it says, in the days of Herod the king. So why is that important? What was going on in this time? So what was happening and what was Herod like is the first thing to look at. Um, I, didn't, I don't know much about Roman history, but I always thought like Rome was like a major power all along, and then they just disappeared or something. But when um, Christ came, when Christ was born, <clears throat> it was a huge transitionary time um, for the Roman Empire. That actually started about 30, 40 years before Christ was born, up until the time of his birth. Um, Rome was a power, but it was um, a, a republic at the time, and it was beginning to spread out and taking over places. When it would take like a, an area, it would usually um, had a limited control and oversight, but it would put people into power that would kind of function it the way they wanted to do it, but yet they were had to give their allegiance to Rome. And that was kind of the case here around 30, 40, 30 or 40 B.C. Um, at the time um, in Israel, in, in Palestine at the time. Um, Herod's grandfather and his father were both prominent people in um, Palestine at the time, and they were highly connected with the rulers in Palestine. The rulers in Palestine were the Hasmoneans, um, and they were part of the, they chose the high priesthood and came through all the rebellions that had taken over Israel at the time, and they gave their allegiance to Rome, but they kind of had some independent rule um, at the time. Um, like I said, Herod's father um, was made governor of Judea, and Herod at the age of Herod the Great, which is who it's talking about here in Matthew 2, was made the um, kind of overseeing of Galilee at the age of 25. So a young guy was overseeing um, the area of Galilee. He actually puts down some rebellions in Galilee, so they didn't like him very much, but he was there. Um, around 40 B.C., um, Rome was driven out of Palestine, and the Hasmoneans kind of took over again. Some, another group took over, and Herod, along with a bunch of the other leaders, had a fleet to um, Rome, um, at the time and, and began to recoup their losses. Later on, he uh, came back to Palestine and reconquered it for Rome um, with the support of Octavius and Augustus, or Augustus, I think that was what it was, Antony, Antony and Octavius. There's actually some other guys in between there, but I don't remember who they were, so forget it. Um, Julius Caesar gets killed and somebody else takes over and they're all fighting about who, who has it. But it came down to Octavius and Antony um, who are vying for power of the Roman Empire. Octavius rules out. It's interesting, if you follow the history of Herod the Great, um, he would support one of the coming rulers, and if that guy ended up being the one who took over, it worked out really well for him. If he didn't, he had this way of just kind of shifting allegiances, and everybody just assumed that he was for the other guy along anyways. He just was a, had a way of just 
poetically maneuvering himself in the best spot no matter what happened. And um, so he aligns with Octavius, um, who becomes the first emperor, um, technically the first emperor of Rome, and changed his name to Caesar Augustus, whom we know is the one who decided to count to Israel, Israel and do the census over the world. That was Caesar Augustus. Um, Herod the Great, here in chapter 2 of Matthew, uh, considered himself the king of the Jews, but the Jewish people did not consider himself. Um, it was later on that some others were considered that, but he was not. Um, he was a great builder. If you remember when we went through the book of Haggai, we talked about um, they built this tiny little temple to rebuild the, the original one that had been destroyed. Herod builds up around that, builds an incredible, incredible temple that was um, present at the time of Christ. He built the city of Caesarea. Um, he had 10 different wives, um, an assortment of uh, princesses and nieces and aunts and all sorts of other strange people. Um, but he would uh, marry them and divorce them uh, fairly regularly in his life. Um, at the end of his life, which came at the time of Christ's birth, um, we find, discover that he was um, highly paranoid. Um, he thought everybody was going to take his, his um, job, um, which was true. He was, actually wasn't paranoid. Everybody did want his job. Um, so whenever he thinks somebody was going to take his role, he would usually just have them killed, which included several of his sons who would have taken over after him. He had them killed. Um, he was diseased. He was uh, going through all these different kinds of treatments for his disease, but he ended up dying in 4 BC, which is just shortly after the time that Jesus um, was born. Um, and here in Matthew 2, we're going to see what his response was like and understand that the responses that we have to the coming of Christ affects the responses of people that follow us afterwards. Um, Herod had, uh, after Herod died, um, his kingdom was divided among three sons because um, he had killed the other ones. Um, one of them was Herod Antipas. He was called, Jesus called him the fox, if you remember. Um, he said, go tell that fox something, and, and Jesus called Herod Antipas the fox. Um, he's the one who took um, his brother's wife and ended up having John the Baptist beheaded. Um, the other uh, one who took, um, took over power after Herod and shared the kingdom, shared uh, Palestine, was Herod Philip. Um, all we know about him is that he lost his wife, to Herod Antipas, who took his wife. Um, his daughter was Salome. She's the one who danced for Herod Antipas. And then the third uh, one, son who had taken over the air was Archelaus, and he was over Judea. Actually, later on in Matthew, it says that um, Joseph took Mary off to Egypt because, they were, um, because the angel warned him to go away. And when they came back, it says that they were going to go to Judea, but they decided not to because they saw Archelaus was ruling and he was as bad as Herod, so they're afraid of him, so that's why they ended up going up to Nazareth. Um, after those guys all passed away, the next uh, leader of that group was Agrippa I, who would have been Herod's grandson. And I share that just to share, um, the, the ones who followed Herod all responded the same way Herod did to the claims of Christ. Um, Herod Agrippa I um, was the son of uh, one of the murdered sons, um, so is Herod's grandson. He's the one who killed James in the book of Acts, and he's the one who imprisoned um, Peter. Um, the scriptures in Acts 12, if you want to read about a swift end to somebody, he's the one who was standing up before the people, and they're all claiming that he was like a god and not a man. And all it says about it is God struck him down, and he died and was eaten by worms. That's the end of his life. Um, that's all it says. Um, and then there's Herod Agrippa II, 
And he's the one, if you go to the end of the book of Acts, like Acts 25, remember Paul is being taken prisoner and he keeps getting brought before these guys to share. And um, there's a guy named Felix who was related to these guys in some strange way, I can't remember. But um, he, he's, he listened to Paul and then later on he says, he goes to Herod Agrippa II and says, you should hear this guy, he's really great. And Herod Agrippa also listens to Paul. He's the one who says to Paul, I'm almost a Christian, but not quite, uh, as he listens to Paul and what he has to share. Um, it's interesting, though, that all of them, every single one of them, we're going to see in this story, Herod the Great, um, all three of those who followed him, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Archelaus, Agrippa I, Agrippa II, every single one of them got to hear the truth. They all get to hear the message. As a matter of fact, they have firsthand knowledge of it. Herod, Herod the Great here is going to hear directly from the Magi, um, and he'll actually get to see if there was three of them or not, whatever there was. He, he had firsthand knowledge. He had firsthand knowledge from the scribes and Pharisees. Um, Herod Antipas had direct, um, we, we discovered that he actually heard Jesus speak and shared and, and, and wanted to hear him more. Um, Agrippa I, as I said, um, was very involved and knew what was going on with the Christians and had heard the message. Agrippa II heard Paul's whole message. I mean, imagine a, a personal, um, individual, private sermon from the Apostle Paul right in front of them. They all got to hear. And their result is that every single one of them responds to the coming of Jesus in the same way. And they all reject it, as we'll see here. Um, goes on here. It says, um, um, that it says uh, after this, in the days of Herod the king, it says, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. They said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews. Somebody should have warned these guys ahead of time what they were getting into because you, they, they arrived, they went straight to Jerusalem, and they go to Herod himself and begin to start asking, where's the king of the Jews? Um, Herod considered himself the king of the Jews. Um, and they didn't even recognize that he was it. I mean, they gave no attention to him whatsoever. So they, they call these guys into it. Um, somebody probably went to him and said, don't, you know, he's, he's, he thinks he's in the town, you know, over there in the, in the palace, but that's not him. Um, and they come along here in this story, and they present the coming of the king to Herod himself. It says, we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So the Herod the king, says, heard this, and he was troubled, and Jerusalem with him. So he gathers the chief priests and scribes. Um, as I said, they didn't even recognize Herod as being a king, but they get, they get brought before him. Um, at this point in time, Herod had finally... And he's just a, just, just a year, like a couple years, a year or two away from dying. He has established himself. He's established his kingdom. He's gotten control of it. Um, he's gotten this healthy balance between overseeing the Jewish nation as well as getting along with Rome. Um, the scribes themselves as well have, have kind of found their place in society and politics, and they've been corrupted, but they're happy with it. Um, they still have control, and they can make decisions. Um, the last thing either of these groups, both Herod or the scribes, was somebody to come along and shake things up. They did not want that. Herod didn't want to lose his power. Um, the scribes and Pharisees, did, and I think that they ultimately weren't sure if they even wanted the Messiah to come here. Um, they sure didn't need another Jewish uprising, which is probably what they um, thought to have. And I'm going to guess um, that the Magi, when they arrived, doesn't tell us, but I would imagine that they thought that everybody was looking for the same king they were looking for. When they arrived, they probably thought, everybody should be looking. Everybody should know where this guy is. Where is the king that's going to be born? And um, nobody's saying anything. So they get brought in before, as we said before, the scribes and the Pharisees um, who begin to tell them about something 
and where it was at. It was in a time when everybody, particularly Herod and the religious leaders, were all grasping for control. They all wanted to hang on to things. Um, that is my number one problem in life, is, is trying to grasp on and keep control of things. Um, hang on to this illusion that I can, I can make everything work, and I can control my family, control myself, and all these different things. Um, and this was a time when Herod and all those were desperately trying to hang on for control. And I think that the people in Jerusalem and Judea were like us. They were just hanging on. They weren't trying to hold control. They were just trying to hang on and get through life. Everything's up in, up in arms. It's a, a huge time of transition. And here comes along this news that there's a king, the Messiah, that's been born, which sounds like today. Um, everybody hanging on for control or just hanging on. Um, so they, uh, um, we'll see this in a minute. Um, later on, it says that um, they are warned. We, we know the story that the uh, scribes and Pharisees tell them all about him, and Herod sends them off. And uh, when they come back later on, they're warned not to go back, for it says, for Herod was going to search for the child to destroy him. So how does Herod search for the child? We discover that Herod, Herod decides he's going to respond to this, and he's going to search for the child. Um, we're told in verse 4, it says... Um, he gathered together the chief priests and the scribes, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So the first thing he asks is determines where is the child going to be born. So he's, he's, he's taking some steps here. Where is he going to be born? The second he determines is um, when he's going to be born. Verse 17, um, later on in this story, it says when um, what... Um, he says he was enraged. He, he, he inquires of them when they first saw the star... Um, so he can determine the timing of it, um, which affects why he kills the babies that are two years old and younger. And then verses 8 and verse 13, he instructs us, go to look for him. Go look for him. That's the right slide, Rich. That's a good one. <laughs> Leave it up. Um, he says to go look for the child. Um, he sends the magi to look for the child. So he determines where, he determines when, and he enlists their support to go look for him as though he wants to see him himself. His response to the coming of the Messiah in many ways looks right. Where is he going to be born? When is he going to be born? Somebody go look for him. And yet we discover in verse 16 later on when the Magi see the child Jesus, they worship him, and God warns him to go someplace else. It says that Herod was enraged. He was enraged. It's like a, like a child that doesn't get what he wants. He just became unglued over this because he had sought to kill the child um, instead. And we know the rest of the story. We're not going to read it, but um, Herod goes to Bethlehem, which is where the child is supposed to be born. And apparently the, the Magi had arrived a couple years after Jesus was born, and he has all the male children, two years old and younger, in the Bethlehem and the vicinity of there, all slaughtered. They're all killed um, out of his rage. And Herod himself dies a couple years later. So what is Herod's response? What's Herod's response? Um, well, first of all, the priests and the scribes ignored him. Um, interesting that the people that should know the best, like the church, um, seemed somehow to get it wrong. And the scribes and Pharisees, it says that they knew exactly where he was. He was going to be born in Bethlehem. They seemed to acknowledge the arrival of the Magi and that their story sounds true, that there's, no, there's nothing that they don't, um, they don't counter it. They don't say that it couldn't happen yet. Um, Interesting that the Magi came from the east. This is, this is speculation, but the Magi came from east, perhaps the area of Babylon, 
Um, Daniel, who we know many, many years before, hundreds and hundreds of years before, was part of a group of um, astronomers, magi, wise men from Babylon. And in the um, book of Daniel, we actually get a prophecy towards the end of Daniel that actually pinpoints, if you, if you read it that way, the very time when the Messiah would come. And there was already stories this time going, this is about the time this is supposed to happen. And so there may have already been rumblings among the scribes and Pharisees that this was the time when they hear these guys come along and go, We've, we saw a star and he's arrived. Um, they should have thought, maybe he's here. And instead, they just give out the information and they don't do anything. They just completely ignore it as though nothing was taking place at all. Herod's response, on the other hand, is, um, as we have up here, he, he rebels, he resists, and he rejects it. Um, he hears the message. Um, he has confirmation from the people who would know best. Um, and instead of responding and receiving it as good news, he rebels against it and actually plots to overthrow what was taking place um, with those things. And I was thinking, so why did he do that? Other than the fact that he was crazy, but the, um, that doesn't really explain it because um, many people reject it, right? Um, Herod himself rejects it. Perhaps it was he was afraid of the idea. The idea that there's a Messiah creates unrest. I mean, they had had a history of that in Israel where men rose up and said they're Messiah and they tried to cause rebellion and it creates all sorts of troubles. Um, I think um, that he just didn't want to let go. I think he probably thought it was true. The very fact that he killed all the children. Um, he didn't question the scribes at all. He went to Bethlehem, which was a a prophecy that was hundreds of years old, four, over 400 years old. He believed the prophecy and sends to Bethlehem to have this child killed. It makes me think that um, perhaps he actually believed that it was true, um, that there really was a child um, coming on. So what was he afraid of? I think it was um, that he just wanted to hold on to what he had. He wanted to hold on to what he had. Um, in his case, it was power the politics and control of the country. Um, he could kill who he wanted, marry who he wanted. He just kind of ran things, um, did all these things he wanted. But in, in a, uh, a general sense, I think it was that desire to hang on to what he had. And if a Messiah actually came and everything about him was true, then he was not going to be able to hang on to it anymore. Um, Jesus was going to do something about it. Um, something would change. And the coming of the Messiah, and that's the heart of what we want to look at tonight, it would have changed everything for him. It would have changed everything. Um, if Herod had received and said, all right, this is great, let's all go worship him, and had received Jesus, everything would have changed. And the bottom line is, he didn't want to change. He didn't want things to change. He did not want to let go of control. He did not want to have, as Janice said, the world turned upside down. He didn't want to have his own life turned upside down. And so instead, he has a response of rejection and resistance and rebellion against it. It would have changed the beliefs, could have changed careers, the structures of society would have changed, his own personal plans would have changed as well. Whenever we, you take God and place him in the middle of everything, something changes. Um, we have the story of Jesus in a boat with the disciples. Everything changes when he's in the middle of that. You get um, God coming down in the, in the miracles in the Exodus with Moses, there's response to it, not always reception of it, but there's, it changes things. When God's presence is suddenly um, realized that it's there, something has to change. 
it can't be the same. Everything changes. And um, when you put them right in the middle, everything gets changed and shaken up. And the bottom line truth for me is um, I don't like things getting shaken up. Um, I'm not Herod, so we're not worrying about kingdoms and all that stuff, but just my own little life. I don't like things getting shaken up. Um, I don't like having things turned upside down. I don't like it when things become uncertain. I don't like it when somebody else takes control and is going to say, here's how it's going to go and just come along with me. Um, I hate sitting in the passenger seat in the car. I, it goes, I go crazy. I have to go in the back seat and go to sleep or something. I just um, I don't like doing that. I don't like when people change my plans, um, even if it's just a little thing. I just don't like that. And so to have God step in the middle and actually change a life um, is difficult, a difficult thing. Um, this thing about, as, as we uh, think about Christmas time, um, Christians often, I do, I will complain about all sorts of things. I've been making fun of all the music playing in our house because my family enjoys playing all the fun little Christmas songs, and some of them I just absolutely hate um, because they're just stupid. I mean, there's some of the songs, they're just, some of those songs they, they wrote back in the 40s and 50s are like, what? This is really silly. But um, we get upset because um, people don't say Merry Christmas. When you go to the, when you say somebody, they, they say Happy Holidays now. Um, we get upset because cities don't allow nativity scenes to be on government property. We can get upset about all sorts of things. Um, but as I think about myself, in, in what ways, um, in what ways am I like Herod? In what ways do I actually remove Jesus as well? Do I actually take him out of the Christmas story and put him in a different place? Um, is that my response can sometimes be very much like the religious leaders and Herod as well. Um, for one thing, I can ignore him. Um, more often than not, um, I don't know if you come to the end of your day and you find it's quiet and you sit down and you're actually thinking about the Lord um, and you realize, you look back going, this is the first time I've thought about it all day long. It's not that you were... Um, ignore, not that you were not believing. Um, it's not that I wasn't um, walking, that he was there, but I just didn't pay attention to what he was doing all day long. I just kind of ran through the day. The day just happened, and the day's all over, and I thought the Lord was an afterthought in my day when I get to the end of my day. Um, that's ignoring him like the religious leaders did. Um, I don't go out of my way sometimes to pay attention to what he's doing, to see where he's acting. Interesting, the Magi traveled possibly months and months and months, if not years, to get to where they were going to go, all to get to see a little baby that was in a dirty manger that didn't look like a king at all, and nobody was recognizing him. They went to all that trouble just to pay attention to the coming of the Messiah. And yet we can go through a day, I can go through a day easily, and just it becomes an afterthought in my life. How can I be like Herod? Um, yes, even rejecting God. Um, and I'm not sure I actually reject him, but in a roundabout way, I think that we can do that sometimes. Um, let me just kind of offer that up. And the way I do it is I basically um, close God's God off to certain places of my life. Um, so I'm like, yes, Lord, come here. And I have him in different places, certain places in my life. I'm really receptive. But there's other places that just kind of we leave that part closed off. Um, and it can mean just... Um, 
It could be because of sin. It could just be because of, I like having control of that area. It could be because I think this area is going fine, so I don't really need to think about the Lord doing anything with that area because it's all going fine. So I'm sure he's just letting me take care of that. Um, but we, we can close him off to different aspects um, of our life to leave him out of input um, with us. Um, so we let Jesus come in to our life, um, and we even sang about coming. Um, but we, um, we, we let him come in. I let him come in as a guest, but not, um, not the homeowner. You know, there used to be a little booklet about that, about our heart like a home, um, and that Jesus is, we let him be the guest in our house, which is great, but guests don't tell us what to do. Um, guests don't get to go anywhere in the house that they want to go to. Um, we treat them really nice, and we pay attention, and we have good conversation, and sometimes we really honor them, but they don't own the home. They're not the king of the house. And I think that we can be like Herod when we treat um, God's presence um, in that way. And why do we do that? Well, if we put God in the middle of a room, or if we put God in the middle of our church, um, if he actually, um, we actually, I don't know, what's, what's, what's the word for it when God's spirit? But if God was actually, we, God's here, by the way. So we talk, you even talk about him like he's not here. Isn't that weird? You know, he's here, the spiritual is within us, and we even don't talk about it as so he's not here because I don't see him. But if, he, if we knew him in a, such a tangible way that he was here, everything would change. That's, that's the truth of the message of God with us. Everything would change. Um, we would have no idea what would change, but we would be going, whatever, God, whatever, just do it. And our attention would be there, and things would be shaken up. And... Um, and that is why we resist it. That is why we resist it. Because um, I don't like getting changed. I don't like having things um, rearranged in my life. Colossians chapter 1, 3, after telling us that, um, um, that Jesus created everything and everything holds together in him, it says so that Jesus himself might come to have first place in everything. Um, that is God's desire. That is Jesus' goal, to have first place in and everything in our life. That is the truth and the wonder of God with us. He came to take first place. Um, and something that sometimes, sometimes I just do not want that um, because, like I said, things are fine, Lord, and let's be you and I together kind of thing. Um, and just, or I don't want to shake it up. I just don't want things shaken up. And then there's those other moments, and we've, we've, if, we, if you know the Lord, you've had them where you're at this place and you're going, Lord, shake it up all you want because I am desperate. You've got to do something. And we have those moments where we're like, finally you say, throw the doors open, throw all the rooms open and just take over because um, I need you and I'm desperate. And we kind of waffle between those two places at times. So will we embrace his absolute rule? Um, That's the message here. It's the message Herod, I think, may have gotten, but he rejected it. Am I really ready for that? And will I trust God with that. Sometimes we think if we give him control, he's going to do something. We're not going to like it. Um, or he'll take something away that's precious or a dream. And Scripture said he gives us the desires of our heart in actuality. Um, remember the story of Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19. I love that story. Um, and it says Zacchaeus, Jesus was coming, and the crowds were gathering around him. Um, Nobody was rejecting him, at least on the outside at that moment. People were rushing around him and following him and, and calling out to him, and everybody wanted to be with him. And Zacchaeus uh, wants to see him, it says. So he runs ahead and climbs up the little tree, or the big tree, the little guy in the big tree, whichever it was. And he gets up there so he can see Jesus. Um, and Jesus stops 
and he addresses Zacchaeus face to face and name to name and, um, and welcomes him. He, he, he invites him. Uh, Jesus actually invites himself to Zacchaeus' house and actually makes himself the host for Zacchaeus' party at his home. And we know what the story is. Zacchaeus receives him absolutely. Uh, many were looking for Jesus and wanted to include him, but only Zacchaeus actually received him in that story. He's the only one who said, whatever, Lord, just come in and do it. And he says, take my house. Just come on in. And um, before they've even gotten down the road, um, Zacchaeus says, I've stolen from all these people. I'm giving it all back. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give them four times what I, I owed them. He gives this, this whole life that's turned upside down. Everything changes with him um, simply because he gave Jesus the open door. He said, whatever, just come in and take it. I receive you. And he has this incredible, absolutely wonderful change. His world gets turned upside down. Um, it's never the same again. Janice, you can bring the, the worship team up. You guys can make your way up here. Um, the great truth of the, of the uh, scriptures, um, that when we come to Christ, um, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. I grew up thinking the Holy Spirit was like a little God. Um, he didn't really count. Um, that just, I was a good church, but they just didn't say much about the Holy Spirit. And so I was like, yeah, God's with me. But it was always like, it just, it just seemed way out there. Um, the actual truth scripture, the, the, the triune, the, the trinity, the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit there. They're one God. They're all God. And it says that the Holy Spirit actually comes within us and takes up residence in us as Christians. So in you and I, as believers, um, God is absolutely in the most, as Tozer says, is as real as it can get. We just don't see it. It's just a different kind of reality. But it is as real as it can get that God is with us. God indwells us. He's absolutely right here. And I keep thinking, man, if God, if you were just right here, if I could see you, I, everything would change. It'd be great. The truth is, my heart goes, I'm not really sure I want that. And so it's easier to think of him just being a little bit distant, just a little bit distant. Um, and the truth that the scriptures tell us is he isn't distant. Um, he is right here, right in our midst. And the message of Christmas is that God came amongst us. And as believers who ought to know the best, he actually dwells so intimately that he actually dwells within me. He actually dwells within me. Um, and the truth is he does want to shake things up. He, does, he wants to move and he wants to act and he wants to rearrange. And yes, he wants to rule over me in the best sense of the term. Um, as he walks me forward. And the question is, do we receive that? Are we ready to receive that, even as believers? Um, and so that would be our first question. Are we ready to receive that? Um, obviously, if we don't know Christ, the, the first step is, is, is receiving his work on our behalf. But as believers tonight, um, am, I, am I really receptive to him taking over all the rooms and holding rulership um, over my heart? Um, as we uh, as we sing, um, as as it is each each week, the uh, the table here, as you know, the Lord is open, reminding us that um, His His very real presence in our life, because He opened the door for us with His cross. So the communion elements up here, reminding reminding us of His death and His His blood shed for us, and our oneness together as a church. Um, you can take communion if you'd like. Um, on the table back there behind Suzanne, there's. Um, the cards, the prayer cards are there, and those are there every week. Um, as part of your worship, you can, you can write down a prayer request. You can write down an encouragement. Just encourage you that if you put one in the basket there, um, take another card out so you can pray for somebody else. 
um, in there. Um, you can sing. Uh, you can go before the Lord, and you can just tell him, I don't let you in everywhere because I don't want you in everywhere. I mean, if, if that's where we're at, that's where we are. Just be honest and say, do what you got to do to begin to open up my life, to be receptive to your work and to your rule and to your reign. So let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the Christmas message of God with us. It is just, um, it is just really hard to get a hold of. Um, but that, that truth which so much of the world has missed or rejected, um, thank you for um, that we get to receive that. Work in us to um, build our trust and our love and our grace is to let go a bit and just let you uh, take over in the ways that please you. And may you rearrange your life as you should. Uh, may my life reflect you um, so that you can rearrange a world that needs to see something about you. And um, deliver us from hearts like we saw in this passage of ignoring you or um, rejecting or rebelling, but to be receptive and receiving. We thank you that, um, like it says in Revelation, you, you stand knocking, waiting to come in and dine and dwell and to eat with us and to um, bring refreshment in life. And so come, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen.